Well, hello, Summit Church. I want to say welcome to you at all of our locations here at the Summit. Welcome you in this first official weekend of fall. Uh, I know you say, didn't that happen a while back? Yes, but I always date it by when the state fair comes to our city because that just feels more natural to me. So welcome to the first week of fall. Uh, I want to say welcome especially to those of you that are at our, um, our campuses here uh, around the triangle to our first campus ever, our North Durham campus, and then uh, West Club, and then uh, North Raleigh, and then Cary, and of course, you guys uh, that are here at Briar Creek North and South, and a very special welcome uh, to our Chapel Hill campus that is for the first official time meeting together um, on the weekend. They're not in Chapel Hill yet, but they are uh, meeting together this weekend uh, and, and, and doing church together. So if we could at all of our locations, why don't we uh, welcome them uh, as a new campus at the Summit Church. We are starting a new series uh, this weekend called All In, in which we are going to take a look over the next five weeks at five different Old Testament characters who went all in on the mission of God, because I want you and I want us as a church to consider what it looks like for us to go all in with the mission of God. Um, and I want to explain to you why, um, as we do this, why I believe that we are at a very strategic time in the life of our church, um, one that is really not altogether dissimilar from where many of these Old Testament characters that we're going to look at found themselves. Um, and so throughout this series, I'm going to take some time to paint for you a little bit of where we are as a church, um, where we have been, where I believe that God wants to take us, and then I want to call you to go all in for that mission. Uh, now, I'm going to lay my cards on the table right up front here. Um, we have some unbelievably committed, we have some unbelievably generous um, people here at the Summit Church who are in every possible way that I could think of all in a mission of God. But there are also a significant number of you who are only halfway in or sort of in in regards to the mission of God. Um, here's why I say that. Uh, we know that about half of those who attend this church are not involved in any kind of intentional ministry, whether that ministry is here at the church or through the church or whether it's just a ministry that's in the community, we know that about that same number are not involved in any kind of what we would call intentional community, be that a small group or something of the sort where you are engaged in one another's lives and being the body of Christ to one another. Um, we know that, that uh, well over half of you are not even covenant members of this church. Uh, at best, some of you are common law members. You're kind of like, you know, shacking up with us, but you've never actually taken the vow. And so uh, I, I, I'm aware of that as I, as I talk to you. We also know that approximately 50% of the adults who attend here um, give next to nothing um, financially to kingdom work. And about half of that group, so about 25% of those adults who come on the weekend give nothing at all. Now, folks, that's not a financial issue. That is a spiritual issue. And by the way, I, I'm not talking to those of you who are new here. Of course, it takes a while for you to figure out if this is the, the church for you and if, if this is a, a group that you want to be a part of, and it takes some time. I, I certainly understand that. And I also realize that there can be a number of things that you are doing that I have no knowledge of, so I'm not trying to set myself up as judge because I have, don't have the knowledge, all the knowledge in order to be the judge, but I think we could suffice it to say that there is a significant number of you who are merely spectators in the church. Church for you is more like an event that you attend than it is a community that you're a part of or a mission that you're engaged in and are committed to. 
You're more, you're more fans of Jesus than you are actual followers. And let me acknowledge right up front that one of the things we're going to consider in this series is your financial commitment to the kingdom of God. That's certainly not the only factor, but it is one, and it's an important one. Jesus said that money is the currency of our lives, and that how we spend our money indicates where our heart really is and where our true kingdom actually is. Now, I know that a lot of people object whenever a pastor or whenever a church talks about money, and they're like, well, why has it always got to be about money? Because I guess they assume that we teach this stuff because we want your money, and so this is a way of manipulating you into giving us your money, but the simple fact is Jesus talked about money more than any other subject in the New Testament. He had more to say about money than he did heaven and hell combined. Because money usually is the most accurate barometer of where your heart really is. Where you spend your money shows where your real priorities are. It shows what you really delight in. It shows what you really trust in. It shows what kingdom you're really laboring for. Now, this next statement is a little aggressive, as if the, the last few had not been, but, um, but many people object to me talking about money precisely because how they spend their money indicates that their commitment to Christ is a sham. They're religious, but they're not genuine disciples of Jesus, and what they do with their money shows that. And they don't like me or anybody else pointing that out, because you can talk a big game all day long, but your wallet betrays you. Rarely do I have a truly generous person object when I talk about money. But I, I say this, anytime I talk about giving, and I will say it again because I mean it with 100% of everything that is in me, if it really is a problem for you to hear this, because you really can't get over the church just wants my money piece, then I would prefer that you hear these messages and respond by giving somewhere else. I, I genuinely mean that. I would rather you become a generous person and find a ministry that you really believe in and give there, I, I would rather that happen than, than for you to let your inability to trust us keep you from coming, becoming a, genuine, ge a generous person in God's kingdom. I mean that. I am more concerned with you becoming generous as a disciple of Jesus than I am with you giving here. Maybe one day, maybe one day we will earn your trust. And when we do, you can give here. But until then, I am fine with you giving somewhere else. I, I, I really am. And so the bigger thing for me is do you become somebody who is actually all in with the mission of God and, 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 and all in with every part of your life? So yes, we're going to talk about finances in this, but that is one part of a much larger whole. I've been challenging some of our leaders already about this. I'm just saying, hey, I want you to be thinking about this, small group leaders and, and leaders here in our church. And, and one of them wrote me a note recently that I thought just kind of perfectly encapsulated everything I hope to see over the next several weeks. Uh, he said that he and his family talked a lot about this, and he identified seven different areas in his life that God was speaking to him and his family about going all in on the mission of God, only one of which was financial. The other six had to do with things that had nothing to do with money. They were just things that he felt like this is what it means for our family to be engaged in the mission of God. That's the goal here, because here is what I know. When you're all in with the mission of God, then all the resources that we need to do what God is telling us to do will be here in abundance. So I'm not really worried about that. We're going to give you several on-ramps into the mission of God over the next several weeks um, in all kinds of things. And so I'm hoping this is a defining moment for many of you as it relates to you going, uh, going from being a fan of Jesus into an actual follower. So here's the question I want you to consider over the next several weeks. We're going to consider it from multiple angles. Are you all in on the mission of God with your life? Not just are you committed to the church on the weekend. I want to know, are you all in on the mission of God with the biggest parts of your life? 
a few weeks ago, if you're a sports fan, you probably saw the same statement that I did by Dr. John Jenkins, who is the president of Notre Dame University, when they joined the ACC. And this is a direct quote. I'm going, I, 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 I could not believe, so I, I copied it and just, I said, I got I to use that. He, he said this, I just want to say emphatically and clearly, football aside, we're all in in the ACC. We are deeply committed to the ACC. And I want to be like, you're all in in the ACC except for football? I mean, no offense, but what else does Notre Dame actually bring to the table? Right? I mean, how would you say I'm all in except for football? Right? Well, what, here's a question. What is the football of your life? What's the football of your life? And are you all in with that? For some of you, it's your money. For some of you, it's your time. It's your reputation. Are you all in with not just the weekend stuff, but with the big things? Or think of it like this. If you have a breakfast of bacon and eggs, both the pig and the chicken contributed to your breakfast, but in different ways. The chicken made a contribution, but the pig was all in, right? <laughs> so which of those two metaphors better describes you and your relationship to the kingdom of God? Here's the first story we're going to consider. It's in the first book of the Bible, so it should be easy to find. Genesis chapter 6, it is the story of, of Noah. The story of Noah. Now, I know I've spoiled you a little bit over the last several weeks because we've only been in the Gospel of John. So you had, for those of you that are new to your Bible, you had to find it one time, and then after that, you could just open right to it. We're going to be all over um, the Old Testament, so that might be difficult, but I will tell you this. Every Thursday on The City, which is our, our online network here at the Summit Church, I will put up the passages I'm preaching from and even kind of give you a preview, some things to be thinking about. A lot of people get, like to get that and start reading it so they can come into to the, the, the weekend services prepared, and you can already have it marked in your Bible, and you can you be ready to roll when we start. But here we go, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am truly sorry that I even made them. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you know that he did this through a worldwide flood. By the way, it has always been amazing to me that kids' books usually pick up this story as their favorite one to feature for three-year-olds. You know, with the little bunnies and the furry animals, and in came the animals two by two, the hippopotamus and the kangaroo, and that's, that's like the kid's favorite. But this is a terrifying story of God's judgment. Massive destruction, dead bodies everywhere. I mean, plus this man Noah and his family get trapped on a wooden boat for several months with all these animals. That didn't sound like there's anything fun about that. You know, so make sure you have this thing in the right category as we go into it. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, real quick, people encounter stories of judgment in the Bible like this, and one of the first questions that modern people ask is like, well, was this really, really necessary? I don't really like this picture of, of God. I prefer the precious moments Jesus who, you know, likes to, to pat little children on the head and, and, and that kind of, of God. So is this really necessary? Well, see, verse 5 diagnoses the problem for you. It says that God saw that every intention of the human heart was only evil continually, there's an interesting wordplay that goes on in Hebrew. The word used to describe human wickedness in verses 12 and 13, if you jump down there, the word used to describe human wickedness is the same word used to describe what God does to the wicked on the earth. The word is mashit, and what it means is destruction. Sinful humans are destroying God's good creation, so God is going to mashit the mashiters, 
He's going to destroy the destroyers. So he does so out of holiness and love, the same way that if you love someone who's being eaten up with cancer, you hate the cancer destroying their body, and you are willing to take radical measures like chemotherapy to eradicate their bodies from the cancer. That's what God is doing, is that there is a cancer that is destroying his creation and creating disharmony and creating violence and creating all kinds of destruction. And God is about to go to radical measures to get rid of that. Verse six says that human wickedness grieved God to his heart. The word for greed there is the same word in Hebrew used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an abandoned wife, what she feels when her husband leaves her. A soul-wrenching, despairing grief. So a holy God of perfect love cleansed the earth of sin. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, undeserved kindness. And God preserved Noah and his family as a representative of the human race, and through Noah, he would repopulate the earth. Now, you say, well, was this solution effective? Well, look around. The short answer is no. I mean, Noah screws up his own family within one chapter of being off the ark. Right By the end of chapter 9, Noah's family looks like an episode of the Jerry Springer show. We go down to 821, which is after the ark. You can just note that in your margin. The author repeats that the intentions of the human heart were still only evil continually, which tells you that a greater kind of salvation would be necessary than destroying the world through a flood and giving a wooden ark for people to get into. We need a salvation that would go to the core of the human heart, which is the real meaning of the story, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, let me draw out four points about Noah that I want you to see that are, I think, very relevant for us. Number one, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What was special about Noah? Nothing. Nothing special indicated in these verses. He simply heard the voice of God, and he responded. Verse 9 tells you he was a righteous man. Why was he righteous? Why? Because he responded to God's offer of salvation, period. That was it. Number two, Noah was chosen to be a channel of salvation to others. Noah was not only selected for personal salvation, he was chosen to build an ark that would be a vehicle for salvation to whoever would listen. Now, that would end up being only his family, but the point is that God's grace toward him was never intended for him only. He was to be a channel of grace toward other people. He was given grace so that through him, grace could come to those who would listen to him. Number three. Noah had to dramatically rearrange his priorities in light of God's grace toward him. After this announcement, he could not go on with life as usual and make a few tweaks to his life, pray an extra 10 minutes in the morning during his quiet time, and give a little, you know, at wherever he went to worship. I mean, I mean, the difference from this point on, imagine the difference after God had said this to Noah, how he saw the whole world. Every person that he saw was headed for destruction. The house that he had labored to build would not be there for very long. The things that Noah had worked to create would soon be gone. Everybody that Noah knew would either be saved on the ark or destroyed in the coming flood. It required a radical reorientation of his life. Number four, Noah was grateful. If you fast forward the story to the end, after God sent the flood, and God saved Noah and his family. Noah exits the ark, and the first thing that Noah does is he offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Now, let me give you a little interesting textual note here. Um, this is the first thing in Noah's story that he does of his own volition. If you, if you go back and you read it, and you can do this you know, maybe this week, you'll see that, that what characterizes, 
characterizes Noah's interaction with God is God commands and Noah does. God tells him to build the ark. He tells him how big to make it. He tells him where, when to get on and when to get off. The sacrifice, however, was Noah's idea. It was his initiative. He overflows with gratefulness and wants to say thank you to God. God, why did you choose me to show grace to? God, why did you save my family? And I wasn't more righteous than everybody else. Well, because I was better. You didn't choose me because I was a great carpenter. You chose it. Why? I don't know. But I'm just going to respond with gratefulness and a sacrifice that comes from the deepest places in my heart. We, Summit Church, we, I believe, are in a place very similar to Noah. Here we go. Number one, we as a church have been selected for grace. I don't know why. I really don't. But we can look all around us and see that the evidences of that grace are everywhere. Over the last three weeks, God allowed us to baptize 414 people. 414, that was the final count. <laughs> Praise God. And that, that's not just a stat. It's made up of people like, like this. Let me share with you some letters I have received here. One came in and said this, I'm writing to tell you that my baptism, his baptism was actually, this guy was, was this past spring. My baptism this past spring has been the best decision of my entire life. When you gave the call to be baptized, I hesitated because I was making excuses in my head. I'd rode with a friend and his wife to church, and I didn't want to keep them too long afterwards, nor did I have a change of clothes. Well, they, you mentioned that we had a change of clothes for me, towels and everything I could possibly need. Then you asked everyone in the audience if they would raise their hand if they drove somebody here, and they were not willing to wait. I looked out of the corner of the eye at my eye at the people that had driven me, and their hands were not in the air. In fact, nobody's hands were in the air. Well, I was all out of excuses by that point, but I still had that hesitation. Finally, right before we were dismissed, my friend leaned over to me and said, man, if you want to go, I'll go with you. I'll go with you in, in support. Since my baptism, I've made a large change in my life. I had a huge drinking problem, which I thought was okay because I was a college student. But I realized drinking every night wasn't the fun that I once thought it was. I had originally started drinking to try to pick up girls. Um, I'm not totally sure the logic here, but, you know, there it is. But now I was drinking because I was depressed and I was missing something or someone in my life. After my baptism, he says, the last time I had a drink was the Friday before Easter. And this guy was saved and baptized on Easter Sunday. He goes, on that same night, I attempted to take my life that evening, but I had this rush of ideas that maybe I was here for something else. And I came to the Summit Church that Sunday. God saved my life in every possible way that Sunday, and I was baptized. Attending this church has made me realize that the pain that I've been feeling was loneliness because for a time I turned my back on Jesus, and it's hard to be close to God when I'm in pain and I'm lonely. I am so happy that I've joined the Summit family because they are supportive and they are loving in every way. I wake up every morning and thank Jesus for dying for my sins and saving my life, and I want to do everything I can to serve him. I've joined a small group with my friend and his wife. Although I'm the only single person in the group, they still welcome me with loving arms every time we get together. I've been told by many people that I am so much happier since I stopped drinking and started to put my trust in Jesus Christ. I have genuinely been saved. Isn't that amazing? Or how about this one? I am 39 years old, a divorced father of two girls, now teenagers. In 2000, I was destroyed by my sin and double life of homosexuality. Fast forward, I'm condensing his letter here, but fast forward 12 years. Two months ago, I was happily living my gay life. While driving one day, the Holy Spirit said to me in my car, it's a lie. For the first time in years, my heart actually hurt it, not just my head. 
My brother pointed me to your church. You have no idea how the sermon last week in the Can't Believe series on the sexual captive pierced my heart. I still cannot stop thinking about a statement that you made that Jesus' last words on the cross were not, go fix yourself. His last words on the cross were, it is finished. I've always thought I had to clean up to come to Jesus, tortured by past mistakes and sin, which are really only the lies of the enemy. Through the ministries of your church, I found the gospel, and I am just writing to say thank you. Isn't that amazing? This is not somebody that's hearing something that's entertaining and engaging to him. This is something that exudes the power of God. I don't know why God chose to select us for that. What you're hearing there goes beyond a speaker's ability. If you hear that and you say, wow, that's because J.D.'s an effective preacher, then you are totally clueless. Because effective preachers don't do things like that. The Spirit of God does things like that. We've been selected for grace in all those 414 stories. We don't know all of them. We can't share all of them, but there's stories, many of them, that are similar to those. For the past four years, we've been in the top 25 fastest growing churches in the nation. We've grown by nearly 1,000 people each year for the past four years, made up of many people like, like those. And God has allowed us not just to reach them, but to train them up and send them out. You've heard me say you know, several times probably that we, we just sent a team of people out to um, Southeast Asia, a team of eight, who were all people who came to Christ when they moved here and got involved in our church, or seven out of eight of them at least. They were saved here at our church and are now taking the gospel around the world. Mike McDaniel, our church planning pastor, tells me that as we gather this weekend at the Summit Church to worship, there will be about 7,000 people here in the Triangle that will attend the Summit Church this weekend, but while we gather, over 2,000 people are worshiping in churches that we've planted around the country, around the United States, places like Murfreesboro and Nashville and Greensboro and Denver. And one of the guys we sent out, Brian Barley, who is our, our planter in Denver, Summit Denver, they, chose, they don't make him take the name Summit, but they chose it because he said, we actually have mountains in Denver. I don't know what you're thinking in Durham, but um, <laughs> he, uh, Brian Barley, pastor of Summit Denver, he said, um, he said, he said, we're really excited. We just baptized three people this past month. He said, what was most exciting about those three is that none of them were brought to Christ by the people that the summit sent out here. These people were brought to Christ by people we've reached. So in other words, Summit, you've got grandkids. And I've heard that grandkids are more funner than kids because, because you get all the excitement and fun and none of the mess. So um, we got grandkids. Um, our influence in the city just keeps multiplying. This past fall, we had 19 schools contact us about launching a mentoring and tutoring program in the public schools. Summit members going into these public schools during the school day to serve at-risk students and their teachers on a weekly basis. And what's significant about that is they're coming to us. They're coming to us to say, we've heard the reputation that you have in your city. We want your presence here. The sun, this summer, we put 2,500 volunteers on the street in one week to serve our city. Probably most fulfilling to me was as I visited some of these different projects that our church was involved in. What I saw were not people who were doing a one-time project where they would come in and you know, get involved with somebody who's you know, kind of down on their luck and then rush back to their car for two hours and you know, uh, put Purell on their hands and, and then go, go away and think about it again next year. What I saw were people that this was their, their year-long project, that they, this has become a part of their life. Their small group now consists of people that are from these groups that, that we are doing ministry, that we're doing ministry among. What was special about Noah? Nothing. He just listened to God and did what God said. What is special about us? Nothing. 
We've just believed God and taken him at his word. We believe that Jesus was serious when he said through Peter's mouth that he wasn't willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. We believed him when he said that he would do exceedingly abundantly through us above anything we could ask or think or even imagine. We believed him when he said that if you would call on my name and you would ask me, I would do great things through you that you probably could not even describe to somebody else. We just believed it. We're like Noah, we just believed that God was serious. And God's grace began to flow through us. Number two, we've been given a very clear mission. We've been given a very clear mission. Like Noah, we've been given a very clear description of what we should be doing. Jesus summarized our mission. It's really short and really tight. Matthew 28, 18, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded of you. Here at the church, we've interpreted that primarily in three ways, that three, three, three kind of ways we focus on making disciples. One is our families. We believe that our families are our first mission field, and we are committed to discipling those we win to Jesus. That starts with our families, because we want them to grow up strong in God's kingdom. And that is very personal to me. If you've been around here, you've probably heard me share this before, but it's personal to me because in 1975, Lynn and Carol Greer moved to a new city. And they just had a, a son. I was two years old at the time. And they moved to a new city and they thought I was their first son. They thought we need to get back involved in church because people do that a lot when they have kids. They're like, well, you know, we got to quit messing around. We got to get serious in a church somewhere. So they'd heard about a church that was, was exciting. It was growing. They had a pastor who could hold everybody's attention. And they went and God saved my mom and dad. But because this church was committed to not just seeing people respond and come and be baptized and putting their name on a list somewhere and reporting them to some agency that counts how many people you baptize and you don't know who that is, but you know, because the, this church wasn't, they, they weren't content with that, they were committed to discipling my mom and dad. And so my, I had the privilege of growing up at a home where my mom and dad walked with Jesus and loved Jesus and taught me to do the same. And now because of a church that was committed to discipling families, I didn't just get reported, or my parents just get reported on a, a list somewhere Right? My eternity is different, and so are my children's eternities now because of the faithfulness of that church to discipling its families. That's what we are committed to. We are, we, we are committed to discipling the nations. When Jesus says, go into all the nations, he uses the term ethne, which means it, it, it's what we now call an unreached people group that have a, have a language, and it's a people group that has no gospel witness. There are 6,640 unreached people groups in our world today. We are committed to being a church that raises people up and sends them out to take the gospel where the gospel is not known. And that also is very personal to me. Because when God called me into ministry, I was in college. I was not headed toward ministry. I was headed toward law. And what God did is he called me to the ministry by calling me to the mission field. That's where I originally thought that I was headed. And God has never relinquished that call off of my life to the mission field. He's just shown me that the way that I will serve the mission field is as a pastor in a church here in the United States. But the way I say it is, God started my call to ministry by calling me to the mission field, and the way I'm fulfilling my call to the mission field is as a pastor, which is why we talk about this a lot, because we believe this is what the Great Commission is all about. And so we're always talking about sending. I know not everybody's supposed to leave Raleigh-Durham and go there, but I know a lot of us are, and I know a lot of us are supposed to be, in, be involved in sending, which is why I'm so very grateful to be here in Raleigh-Durham. Because I, I, honestly, this is not rhetoric. I cannot think of a better place in the country to be more strategic for raising people up and sending them right where we live. I didn't want to pastor a church in Raleigh-Durham. Um, I, I wanted to pastor a church in Fort Lauderdale. That's not a joke. I had, I had a piece of property picked out that we were going to build the church on. I'd started to line up sponsors 
right? You're like, why Fort Lauderdale? Because God and lost people are everywhere, but the beach is in Fort Lauderdale. That's, that, that was kind of my mentality. Um, I, I wouldn't think in Raleigh-Durham, but now in just seeing the sovereignty of God that this was the place that we could most effectively raise people up and send them out. This weekend, we got 160 of our members, members, who are living overseas on one of these church planning teams. It's one out of every 20 Summit members lives overseas on a church planning team. We say, we say our families, we say the nations, we say our neighbors, because we know our presence in this city is not incidental. We love our city. We are committed to this city. We love our college campuses. They provide a lot of challenges for us. You know, in ministry, I was looking over our attendance records over the last 10 years the other day, and there's this like one season where we just exploded in growth. And uh, I was looking at with one of our, and they're like, well, that was the season all the college students came. Our attendance tripled in like three months, and our weekly giving went up $13.18 on average. (laughs) So so there's a lot of challenges with that, but but that's that's our field. These are our workplaces. The, The Research Triangle Park and all the places here around the triangle, these are our neighborhoods, they're our schools, especially the broken parts, we consider them to be ours. That's where Jesus' heart would have been. That's why we identify the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, the at-risk child, the dropout here. Because these, these, we're responsible for them. And we want to put adoption and foster services in Raleigh-Durham out of business. Because there's just none left. We want to take care of them. This is our city. So that's how we interpret that making disciples. Like Noah, we believe we've been given something to build. Noah was told to build an ark. When Jesus left, he said, build my church. Now, by church, I don't mean like, you know, bricks and mortar and, and church buildings. I'm talking about the body of Christ. But see, you'll see throughout this series that whenever God wants to do something on earth, he gives people something very specific that he wants them to build. He, he didn't say to Noah, Noah, I'm going to send a flood, right? Here's your advance warning. Now, you figure out how you're going to avoid it and then, you know, get to work on something. He gave him the description of the ark, he told them how long it was supposed to be, how he was supposed to build it. He was very specific. The church in the New Testament is the equivalent of the ark in Genesis 6. When Jesus left, he said, you will build my church. Now, I don't want to overstate this, so please hear me charitably and don't twist what I'm about to say. God left one institution on earth when Jesus went back up to heaven. One. He left a local church. That is the one institution you see running throughout the book of Acts. He told him to wait. When he gave him the Great Commission, he said, you wait and the Holy Spirit will come. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes is he builds the local church in Acts chapter 2. You could summarize the entire missiological strategy of the book of Acts in one sentence. The apostles going to strategic cities and planting churches. Again, here, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. They didn't start soup kitchens. They didn't, they didn't, they, they didn't go do evangelistic crusades. They planted churches because local churches would do the evangelistic crusades and the soup kitchens in their community, and they would do them in a much more healthy, holistic way than simply dropping in somewhere and then dropping out. So he said, you plant churches. So our strategy here at this church is to plant churches. Because why? Because that's what they did in Acts. The only thing we can find. Yeah, now listen, we do a lot of soup kitchens, and we do a lot of evangelistic initiatives, but for us, they're always part of a church planting strategy. Or they're done in concert with a local church in the place that we're doing, we're doing the work. Throughout the book of Acts, the local church was the center and it was the focal point of ministry and giving. So you see things like Acts 4.34, there were no needy persons among them. 
For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And from there it was distributed to anyone as he had need. The focal point of their ministry and their giving throughout the book of Acts was the one institution that Jesus had shed his blood for, the local church. Now, please do not misinterpret it, what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's something wrong with giving money elsewhere. I'm not saying there's something wrong with doing ministry elsewhere. My wife and I give aggressively, aggressively to ministries that are outside the local church. We bless and support those. We've got many that are a part of our congregation right now. We love them and we support them. We, we give to them. I'm just saying that in the New Testament, the focal point, and that's what Veronica and I, that's, what, that's our conviction, is the focal point of our ministry and our giving is the local church. In the New Testament, the local church is like an aircraft carrier, right? I mean, you know, uh, an aircraft, the battles that an aircraft carrier fights are not on the aircraft carrier. If they are, then that's a major problem for the aircraft carrier. Right? The, the aircraft carrier equips planes to be able to go out and fight battles somewhere else. Right? That's how we see our church. How do you see your church, by the way? For many people, their church is a cruise ship. Right? It's a place where all your you know, religious needs are met, and you come, and it's just like a Christian country club. That is not this place and never will be this place. Okay, so just let me go ahead and just kind of burst that bubble right now if that's, if that's your bubble. That's just not what, we're, what we do. A lot of ch- people think about their church as a battleship. You know, a battleship where you kind of, you know, the, the church goes, goes and does the ministry. You know, you park it outside of an island, you just shell the island. It, that's not what we do. We're an aircraft carrier in that we equip people to be able to take the kingdom of God into the places where the kingdom is most needed, and that is inside of our community, and that's your role. That's what we do. Some at church like Noah, we know that God has selected us not simply to save us, but to make us a channel of salvation to our community. I I told you, I found out something earlier this year that was just so meaningful to me. Um, The guy that planted our church 50 years ago, his name's Sam James. He worked for the core group that was going to plant the Homestead Heights Baptist Mission on North Carver Street in North Durham. He worked with them for nine months. They officially launched the church in 1962. He said, what's ironic is he says, I only preached one sermon at the Summit Church, or the Homestead Heights Baptist Church, which is what our name was before we became the Summit Church. He said, I only preached one sermon there. It was Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. It says this, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, I asked him, I said, why did you preach? Why was that your one sermon? By the way, he preached that sermon. Then that afternoon, he left and was commissioned as a missionary to Vietnam for the next 40 years. I was like, why did you choose that one text? He said, because I knew 50 years ago that this church was never supposed to be a place where God just blessed the people for themselves. That they were to stretch out to the right and to the left because God had chosen them to bring salvation to the nations and to all the people here in the triangle. That is our legacy that is what was birthed as we, as our church. That's what we've been on for the past 10 years. That's how long I've been a pastor here. By the way, he told me, he said, what was discouraging, he said, for 30, 40 years, I felt like the church completely lost its way. He said, now to see, now to see what's going on, now to see how many people you're sending out, now to see what you're doing in the community, he says, you are fulfilling an old man's dream. Because I knew it could happen. And I knew it was supposed to happen. That's informed our mission for the past 10 years. That's why we're minimalist on our buildings. I mean, look around, this is not a, you know, or any of our campuses, they're not beautiful places. We're minimalist. We're not anti-building. And we know that God, you know, he, we call them facilities because they facilitate the mission of God. 
Jesus didn't call us to build a huge monument to him in the triangle that was known around the world for how beautiful it was. The beauty of the church is in the people of God, not in the architecture. So we're minimalist. We're like, well, what do we need to be able to get the job done? You know, the, the, our multi-site strategy is not done because I prefer that. I don't like myself on camera. I, I don't like the way I look. No, sorry, campuses. I don't like not seeing a bunch of people that I don't, there's a lot of people at this church that I love that I don't get to see every week because we're in different places around the triangle. But we just came to the conviction that we could better accomplish our mission if that's the, pers- the, the strategy we pursued. And God is giving us that. It's, it's, just, it's just who we are. We feel like God is telling us again, Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. We feel like he's saying, stretch out to the right and to the left. Because what I've chosen you for is, has nothing, well, it does have to do with you, but it's not only to do with you. It has to do with all these things that I've called you to. Number three, this mission requires a radical reorientation of our priorities. Noah's adjustment was not a slight adjustment. Again, it was a whole new way of looking at the world. The mission that Jesus called us to is not a slight adjustment in our lifestyle either. It's a whole new way of looking at our world. For years, I've told you this story. It's a true story, and I'll review it for you just so we're all on the same page. It was on a guy, got a talk show talking about a, a tragedy that he'd been a part of out in California several years ago where an earthquake shook. Um, he was about 3 a.m., and he's driving outside of Los Angeles, and it's a pretty bad earthquake, but it only lasted 20, 30 seconds, and he thought everything was fine. So he says, so I turned, uh, uh, you know, to take a left onto one of these bridges, these famous bridges out there. He said, I'm driving along, it's 3 a.m., and the taillights of the car in front of me just, they just disappear. He said, well, I, you know, obviously you caught my attention, so I, I stopped, got out, and realized that one of the pieces of the bridge had just fallen out during the earthquake. This is a major highway. And he said, I turned around, and here comes some cars down this bridge headed right toward that. So he said, I started to wave my hands to get them to slow down. Now, you're driving along outside of Los Angeles at 3 a.m., and there's some dude out on the side of the road waving his arms. You're going to stop? No, this guy said, I watched as four different cars went by me at about 70 miles an hour and just plunged over this little precipice and to their death. He said, then I saw a bus coming across that bridge, and I just made up my mind that that bus is going across that bridge. It's going to take me with it. He said, I, I, he says, I took off. I had two shirts on, took my outer shirt off, and I started to wave it. And that bus was flashing its light and honking its horn. He said, but I wouldn't move. I just stood there. And he said, that bus driver stopped. He got out. He's cussing at me. And I'm like, look. And he said, I showed him. He realized what was happening. So he parked his bus. And between the two cars, they cut off all traffic going over that direction. And the reason I share that with you, and I do so often, is because here's what you consider. If you were the first person there when that happened, what's your response? Right? I mean, it, it requires something different maybe you just stand on the side of the road and try to show by example, right? I'm not driving. My example is going to help you learn not to drive either. No, I mean, it requires something a little more drastic than that. The mission that God has given us, the mission that God gave to Noah was urgent. Paul, Romans chapter 9, said he was in anguish every day. Imagine that was true of Noah too. Every day. I can't look at people without knowing. You're either going to be saved in this ark or you're going to die in that flood. Every day, Paul said, I think about people that I know they're either in Jesus or they're outside of him. Do you see the world that way? I know you say you believe the gospel, but see, here's my question. Do you really believe it? Does the urgency that dominates your lifestyle demonstrate that you believe it? I know your mouth says you believe the gospel, but does, does your priorities, does your lifestyle, does your giving show that you believe it? Some of the urgency of this mission demands that we not just huddle up in a conclave and sing God songs and just watch the world go to hell around us. 
Jesus shed his blood and offered us the power of his spirit so that we could make a difference, so that we could reverse the tide, so that we could see the salvation of Jesus extend onto our college campuses and into our places of business and into our schools and our neighborhoods and our homes, even into the ghettos and the brothels in Raleigh-Durham so that there is not a corner of this city where the gospel of Jesus does not brilliantly shine. Number four, we do so with a grateful heart. We do so with a grateful heart. Noah was so grateful when he got off this boat, he offered that sacrifice. Well, I explained to you earlier in this message that the ark, for most parts, follow me here, was a failure. Which is why the ark, as all Old Testament pictures do, points beyond itself to something else. And of course, that something else is Jesus. Jesus was the ark that we were pulled into that kept us safe from the destroying reign of God's wrath. Jesus drowned in the sea of God's wrath so that we could be lifted safely above it. He shielded us from the reign of God's wrath. So when Noah got out, he commenced a new creation, right? So that all creation, he just started to repopulate the earth. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he began a new creation. But his new creation was total. It wasn't just new families of people, it was new kinds of people. People whose hearts had been transformed by Jesus' resurrection spirit. But here's the question, if Noah was grateful for the salvation provided by his ark, how much more should we, who've been saved from God's wrath by Jesus, our ark, spontaneously erupting gratitude and sacrifices of thankfulness, even more than he did for what God has done for us? You see, in light of all these things that I've just shared with you, there's four things, that we've been selected for grace, that our mission is urgent, that, we've, um, that, that we're doing it with a grateful heart, that he's not just selected us for us, Over the next few weeks, I want to introduce you to an initiative that we're calling All In. In light of these things that I just shared with you, All In. Now, one of the things that we're doing as a part of this initiative is introducing a new approach to giving. Let me explain it to you. In the past, we've asked people to give in three different ways. There's what people just give on the weekend or online or whatever. And then there's, we we would have like special missions offering around Christmas time. And then we would have, um, we would have like building campaigns. We're like, well, we need to build this building, so let's raise the money to do that. Well, those latter two things, the missions and the building, we would always say to people, this should be above and beyond your normal giving or what some Christians call their tithe, which is just the way they give to their church. All right, here was the problem with that approach. All right, the first problem is, I told you that 50% of our people don't give in any significant way to the kingdom of God. So what happens when you ask somebody who doesn't give anything for them to give above and beyond their normal giving? right? Well, they just tune out. They don't have normal giving. So we've been basing our ask on an assumption that feels exclusive to them, and so they don't participate. They assume it's got to be for other people, and they don't take an opportunity to to be challenged to grow spiritually in their generosity as a result of this challenge. The other thing that happens when we do this kind of like, you know, like above and beyond, give to missions, above and beyond, give 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 to the buildings is is we tend to de-emphasize the general, everyday, incredible ministry that goes on here at this church. You know, we spend this money that we call general ministry that you understand is anything but general. It ministers to our families and our children, right? Our student ministries, our discipleship opportunities, college ministry, church planning center, community ministry, creative arts, counseling ministry, our benevolence ministry. That's all mission. Why on earth would I want to de-emphasize those elements in our giving and imply that it's only the extra that's missional? Everything we do here is mission critical, or else we wouldn't be doing it. And every dollar that gets given to this church is vital, or else we would not be challenging one another to give it. So that's why we want to do it differently. 
We want to just have one fund which represents the full scope of the mission that God has given to us as a church. And we want people to go all in with it. I want to put everybody in the same baseline. Don't do any of this above and beyond ask. I want you to consider, as a part of this church, one kind of lump figure that represents your financial commitment to the mission of God. I want you to consider what level of giving represents a total, radical, all-in, sacrificial commitment of generosity to the mission of God through this church, if this is your church. Here's how it's going to break down. We're going to think of it in a two-year block. By the way, when you, when you leave here at any of our campuses, you're going to get a little book, or actually not a little book, it's a, it's a substantial one, that, that explains all this. We say for our family. We project about 16.8 million over the next two years that we will spend on discipleship ministries to our community here um, for our family, 16.8 million. Then we've got what we call for our neighbors. That's what we're calling how we're gonna expand to be able to reach new people in the triangle. Sometimes that means you know, working on existing campuses to help facilitate the growth. Sometimes it means planting a new campus like our Chapel Hill campus. That's five million is how much we're setting aside in the next two years to do that. For our world, 4.2 million. That means what we plan to do in the next two years is give away. That for our world's money, we give away. We give it away to community ministries. We give it away to church planners. That's money that we just write a check and say, this, is, this goes out from here. Did you ever think you'd be a part of a church that would give away $4.2 million in the space of two years? That's, that's what we feel like we are called to do. So we are asking the Lord for $26 million in generosity commitments over the next two years. Let me show you at all of our campuses. Take a look. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nation and will people the desolate cities. Summit Church, as we've seen God do great things in our past, now is not a time to hold back. Now is a time to prepare for what God wants to do next. Now is a time to go all in for the gospel. When we go all in, the gospel goes out. Going all in for our family means doing everything possible to help our church family grow in the gospel. It means equipping families to raise their children in the gospel. It means increasing our capacity to make disciples through small groups and through ministries for students, college, young professionals, senior adults, and men and women of all ages. We want to go all in for our neighbors by sharing the gospel that has changed our lives with those who live around us. But when most of our services at most of our campuses are nearly full, it's time to do something. It's time to enlarge our tent, to make room for others because God is not done reaching the triangle through the Summit Church. This mentality compels us to go further. It's time to go all in for our world. We believe God has called us to proclaim the gospel through words and deeds here, across this nation, and to nations all over the world. We believe the church is God's plan A for the world, and planting churches is the greatest act of love we can show to the nations. We are called to serve the least among us, the homeless, the unwed mother, the orphan, the prisoner, the teenager living at risk. When we serve them, we serve Jesus, and we show his love to a world that needs him. Over the next two years, we are focusing all of our generosity, tithes, offerings, and gifts into one fund. Having a single fund for all giving celebrates that everything we do and everything we support is important in the kingdom of God. Summit family, this is our church. This is our mission. We're in this together. Jesus held nothing back in his mission to save us. 
what will it mean for us to go all in for him? This is by far the biggest thing we have ever attempted as a church. So here are our very specific goals, all right? Got two of them. And let me start with the secondary one. The secondary goal is that we actually get the resources in hand that we need to be able to disciple our families and our neighbors in the nations. I believe God has given us a great position, a great opportunity to be able to do this. That's the secondary goal. You know what my first goal, my first hope is in this season? My first hope is that our entire congregation would go all in with Jesus and his mission. That's my hope. I mean, how could I be a pastor and not have that be my primary hope? I want you to be all in for the mission of God because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. See, and with God's help, I believe this all-in initiative may bring us closer to that point where more of our people go from being fans and spectators to being actual disciples of Jesus. So here's my question for you. All right, those are my goals. Here's my question. Are you all in? I want you to stand there with Noah, all right? Think about that. I want you to stand there with Noah looking out your doorway. What does Noah see? He sees neighbors that he loves. He sees a city that he loves. He sees neighbors playing with their kids and going to work and going about their everyday life, and they just don't know. How could he do nothing? I mean, think about how horrendous this was. The waters start to rise, the elderly and the sick, they're the ones who would have died first. Strong young men would have climbed up high in the trees. The only thing worse than the screams of people dying would have been the absolute and total silence that followed when the waters covered the last mountain peak. It's not pleasant to talk about. And one thing I know as a pastor in an American city is that Americans love comfort and they love the you're okay, I'm okay, power of positive thinking, it's a wonderful life. It's kind of sermons. And a lot of people would prefer that I stand up here and say there is no real reason for urgency. There's nothing really to worry about. You want me to tell you that with a little more time, with the right politics, if the right person gets elected, everything's going to be fine. I can't do that. If this is a true gospel, this is a real mission that demands urgent attention and radical commitment. Because people's lives depend on it. Their eternity depends on it. So again, here's my question. I know most of you say you believe the gospel, that Jesus is the Savior and he's the only hope for people all over the world. But does what you're doing with your life and your money show that you believe it? What would you have said to Noah if he claimed to believe that God was going to send the flood but wasn't doing anything, just going about his day-to-day life, wasn't warning people? You would say, well, he says he believes it, but he doesn't show he believes it. Does the urgency that you talk with your kids about these things show you believe the gospel? When's the last time you shared Christ if you're a parent with your kids? Some of you parents care more about where they go to college than where they spend eternity. Does how you spend your money show that you believe the gospel? Your mouth says you believe the gospel. What, is your, what does your life say? Is this mission worth it to you? Do you believe it? you want to take it seriously? If so, this is not business as usual. Right? It's a whole different kind of commitment to what God is doing. By the way, Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're on the other end of this where we kind of are Noah to you. You understand that God kept his word the first time. It was 120 years after God told Noah, but it happened. God said that there is a day that you are appointed to die and stand before him and that we must answer for our sin. And that we are all sinners and the wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ came as our ark to shield us from the wrath of God. He took your penalty in your place. 
so that if you would heed him, if you would hear him, and you would run into him, you would be saved. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever received it? Here's what we're going to do. When you, um, when you leave today, I, told, I mentioned this a minute ago, all of you are going to get a, a book like this, right? One per person. This is something I want you to bring back every week. Is, here's why. It's got a number of things in it. It's got some devotionals I want you to do, daily devotionals that are going to help you kind of go through this in stereo. Um, if you're in a small group, there's some, some, a, a place in here for small groups that they're going to be studying this. There's a place for sermon notes. This is all kind of integrated. So the devotionals and the sermon notes, it's a great way to go through this. You can write it all in here, and I hope that this is a defining moment for you over these next five weeks. Plus, a lot of the stuff that I've shared with you already, just stuff you know, about, about what actually is ahead for our church, this is all outlined in here. There's some great pictures in there um, as well, and some, some word searches, and some scratch and sniff with the staff, and... And all that kind of, no, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not really true. But, but everything else in this book is, um, is fantastic. All right? So uh, get one. Write your name in it. Like, seriously, write your name in it. Get one. Bring it back with you each week for the next five weeks. That's what you do when you leave. Finally, I want you to take this prayer card that uh, you should have been handed when you came in. This one. I want you to do this with your family, if you have a family, this week. What it is, is there are three verses here that kind of encapsulate us being on the mission of God together. And uh, I want you to read these verses. There's a little statement that summarizes the verse. And then there's a, a place down below for you to write a prayer response, which should be about one sentence long that basically says, in light of this verse, this is kind of what God is saying to me and my family. I want you and your spouse, you and your kids I want you all to take this series and go through this and do some introspection about where you are. Let God speak to you and write out a sentence prayer. In fact, I want us to end our time by doing this first one here together. So I want you to take this, this first one, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for, in this world will keep it for eternal life. The summary statement with that, I, we aren't using Jesus for the sake of our kingdom, but we're pouring ourselves out fully for the sake of his kingdom. I want you to think about that for just a couple minutes. At all of our campuses, I'm going to give you just a, a few minutes to kind of meditate on that, on that verse. And then I want you, all right, to write right here, our prayer response, I want you to write a one-sentence prayer of response. Well, I'm not going to ask you to turn this in, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and pray it out loud. Just want you to write it there. And I want you to pray it back to God. And just kind of calibrate where you are. Our worship teams are going to come, campus teams, and then they're going to lead us out of this in a, in a couple of minutes. But you take these moments at all of our campuses right now and you let God the Holy Spirit begin to start this process in your heart.